On the bus every morning, I'm seeing posters of dogs with pleading eyes telling me I was born into scientific research. Don't let me die here. But I'm here today because of scientific research done on dogs, so we must ask ourselves, which life is more valuable, mine or theirs? Hello and welcome to Pumping the Future of Medicine. I'm your host Zara Lum and today we'll be talking about a brief history of insulin, its foundation of questionable ethics and the insulin pump. We'll be interviewing 16-year-old Ryan Lum who has been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes since the age of 2. Let's get into it. Before the discovery of insulin, diabetes was a fear disease that led to certain death. Scientists had limited knowledge on what caused type 1 diabetes and how to cure it, as their methods of refined diets only prolonged the lifespan of patients briefly before they died. There were multiple steps in the discovery of insulin, with different scientists making different discoveries throughout history. However, the medicinal outlook on diabetes was changed forever after an experiment done in 1921 by Frederick Banting, his assistant Charles Best, and a professor, John McLeod. Banting was initially given 10 dogs to experiment on, and sadly all of them died, but Banting's miracle dog called Marjorie later became the first animal to ever survive having diabetes, because of the insulin injections she was getting from the scientists. Although this entire experiment was controversial, as one quote says from Harvard Magazine, it's possible that even the death of the famous Marjorie was unnecessary for the great discovery. John F. Lawman, the writer of the article, states their opinion on the matter by saying, what's the life of a dog? Ten dogs. A hundred. Before Banting and Best operated on dogs, we had no insulin. Afterwards, we did. The discovery of insulin was a big step forward in science, and its treatment of animals was justified in its results that it gave. Fast forward 42 years, and we have the first prototype for the insulin pump, developed by Arnold Kadish in 1963. At this point in time, diabetes patients weren't being treated well, being given two doses of unpurified insulin that was extracted from animals, and they didn't have proper ways of detecting blood glucose levels. Kadish's insulin pump was a large sluggish machine that was the size of a backpack that could be worn and carried around with patients who were connected to it through multiple tubes and cannulas. At the time, it was groundbreaking technology and it was commercialised in 1978 even though it wasn't completely safe and convenient for users. Because of this, insulin pumps were only reserved for the most difficult diabetes cases in the early 80s, although the end of the 80s brought a decline in animal insulin therapy and was quickly being replaced with synthetic insulin and pump therapy. As we speed through the insulin timeline and take in the fast evolution of technology, the 1990s brought a lot of reduction into the size of insulin pumps, and today's insulin pumps are handheld devices that are small enough to fit into the palm of your hand and tuck into the waistband of your pants. The rapid inflation of tiny technology made today's insulin pumps so compact and advanced compared to the very first design, enough that pumps are worn by most children with diabetes and are completely normalized within the diabetes community. The first person to ever undergo insulin therapy was Leonard Thompson, a 14-year-old boy who lived for 13 years after his first injection in 1922, where most diabetes patients were given a strict diet and months to live. Today in 2018, we have Ryan Lum, a 16-year-old boy who has been diagnosed with diabetes for 14 years with an insulin pump that is smaller than the modern mobile phone, thriving like any high school student would. 
So what has changed in almost 100 years in the world of diabetes? Is it to make your tummy better? Yeah. To make your blood better? Yeah. Hello Ryan, welcome to the show. So tell me, what is it like being a teenager living with diabetes and an insulin pump? Well, I assume it's like living like a teenager, but you've got diabetes and an insulin pump. It's not that different, to be honest. I just have to keep track of what I eat and make sure I don't go low or go high, stuff like that. It's fairly simple. So what is going low or going high? When I go low, that means I have too much insulin in my body and I sort of get weak, lethargic, and sort of emotional. Yeah. It's not very fun. Okay. And then being high is when I have too much sugar to insulin, start feeling nauseous um, and thirsty, really, really thirsty. Okay, cool. So describe to me how your insulin pump works. So it's basically a calculator, a clock, and a screw. The pump calculates how much insulin I need for an amount of food, so it's a ratio. Um, so 15 grams of carbohydrate equals one exchange, and that one exchange will equal a certain amount of units. Um, so I put that into the pump, and the pump goes, okay, he needs this amount of units. The screw then turns a little vial, which gets injected into me through a cannula. How does your insulin pump help you in everyday life? What sort of information can it tell you about your body concerning blood glucose levels and insulin intake? Well, the pump itself doesn't actually tell me anything about the blood glucose levels. I have a kit that tests my blood. It does help in that I don't have to worry about losing a needle or not having enough insulin because I can actually see how much insulin I have. And it's also handy because I don't have to do the maths in my head or with a calculator or whatever to figuring out how many units I need when. What do you think your life would be like if you used injected insulin therapy instead of the insulin pump? Because I'm aware that for about a year between being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and getting your insulin pump, you were getting four needles a day. I assume you don't remember that, but what of your early childhood do you remember being affected by your diabetes? Well, actually, recently I went on to needles. Um, there was a period where my pump wasn't working, so I needed to go on to needles at school. And it was not that much different, to be honest, because... I just did it myself because I was comfortable enough with needles and with my diabetes that I was able to do it myself. I just had to keep a piece of paper on me that had the insulin ratios, but other than that, it's really not that different. Yeah, but that would be as someone who's independent and, you know, a 15-year-old. If you were... How do you think it was for mum and dad when, you know, you were younger? Quite annoying. <laughs> yeah? Is that all? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> all right. Do you want me to do that? Yes, please. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> one. And now we come back to where we started, scientific experimentation on animals in return for countless human lives. In today's day and age, what happened to the dogs in 1921, giving them a death sentence, would never fly without a fight. But I leave you with this. What's the life of a dog, 10 dogs, 100? Before Banting and Best operated on dogs, we had no insulin. Afterwards, we did. Marjorie died so that over 90 million people could live. And after that, the dogs were forgotten in favour of the lives we were saving. Was it right? Do those dogs born into science deserve to die there? Or do the patients born into illness deserve to live more?